my mom has a daily devotional that she gets by email. So every morning when she wakes up, there is an email in her inbox with a Bible passage and a brief meditation on it. And one morning a couple months ago, she opened up her email and the Bible verse for that day was from a book of the Bible that she didn't recognize. And that was quite confusing for her. She didn't know what to make of it. But for the summer, she's living with a Bible college student because I'm living at home for the summer. And so she called me down from upstairs. She says, hey, Alex, who is this? I don't recognize this name. And so I go downstairs and I take a look at the Bible passage. And it turns out it was a Bible passage from one of the minor prophets. Now, the point of this story isn't to say that my mom doesn't know her Bible. I'm not trying to make her look bad. In fact, I don't blame her at all for not knowing the minor prophets very well. If anything, the failure is with us, the pastors, because we don't often preach on the minor prophets. They don't get a lot of airtime from the pulpit. And so I want to fix that. I want you to know the minor prophets as well as I do. And so over the next month, we're going to be doing a series looking at a bunch of the minor prophets. Even though they're not preached on very often, I think they still have a lot to teach us. Even though their prophecies were given to people who lived thousands of years before we did, what they had to say still applies to us today. The human heart hasn't changed very much in 2,000 years. But before we get into that, let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us here together this morning to hear your word for us today. Open our hearts and our minds to receive it. Lord, through your message for us today, reveal to us the ways in which we put our own desires above you. Help us see the places in our lives where we do not act with justice and integrity. Draw us back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're going to be looking at the prophet Amos, who wrote the first of the prophetic books. And in many ways, he sets the pattern for the prophets to come. He's a great prophet to look at first, not only because he's chronologically the first, but also because he's the, um, the patterns and ideas found in Amos' writing serve as an excellent foundation for understanding later prophets. But to understand the prophets found in the Bible, you have to understand the situations they are prophesying into. And so for that, I need to give you a quick history lesson, but don't worry, I'll keep it short. So our story begins with God saving the people from slavery in Egypt. And if you've seen the animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, or the old live action movie, The Ten Commandments, that is the story of God saving the people from Israel, saving the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now those movies took some artistic liberties, but they get the the broad strokes right. And after he saves them from slavery, God makes a covenant with them. Now, a covenant is kind of like a contract or a two-way promise. There are terms and conditions that both sides need to uphold with penalties if the promises are broken. And so in their covenant, God promises to be the God of the Israelites, and the Israelites promise to be God's people. God will bless them, and in exchange, they have to follow the instructions that he gives them in the Old Testament law. And those can be found in the Bible in the book of Leviticus. And so with the covenant established, God brings the people into the promised land and the nation of Israel is founded. Unfortunately, the people are not very good at holding up their end of the bargain. 
They worship other gods. They cheat. They steal. They kill each other. Every law that's on the books, the people break it. And they even go so far as to split the country in two in a bloody civil war. The northern half keeps the name Israel, and the southern half comes to be known as Judah. And so into this very unfaithful situation, God sends prophets. And the role of a prophet is to call people back to God. So that brings us to Amos. Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, but like really close to the border with the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's looking over the border and he's seeing the injustices that take place in the northern kingdom and he can't take it anymore. He feels that God is calling him to travel north to the kingdom to deliver the word of the Lord to the people. And the book of Amos that we have in the Bible is a collection of various oracles and poems and sermons that Amos gave over his many years as a prophet. So today we're going to be looking at one of the oracles in the middle of the book in chapter 5. And I picked this oracle specifically because like Amos himself, it's very archetypal. It sets the pattern that many of the future prophets and prophecies would follow. It serves as an excellent example of what a typical prophetic oracle looks like. So we'll take a look at it. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Thus begins the word of the Lord for the people of Israel. Now there's a bit of context here that would have been obvious to the people back then, but can be lost on us today. The cities that are named here, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba, they're not just randomly picked. God didn't just throw darts at a map. These were cities where the people of Israel had built altars and temples to other gods. And this broke their covenant with the God of Israel. They had promised to be his people. And at the core of the covenant was the Ten Commandments. And the first of the commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me, God. And so by worshiping other gods, the people of Israel were breaking their covenant with God. Now, the punishments that God promises here can sound really harsh to us today uh, because we live in a religiously diverse society. We don't think people should be punished for changing religions. And God is saying here, you know, seek me or you'll be sent into exile. And that sounds really harsh to us. But the problem wasn't just that the Israelites were worshiping other gods. As Amos goes on to explain, there are those that turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. The gods that the people had turned to weren't like the God of Israel. The God of Israel was a God of justice and righteousness, and he required his people to live justly and righteously. But the gods the people had turned to, the Canaanite gods, they were not moral. They were gods of money and sex and power. And so by turning away from the God of Israel and turning towards these Canaanite gods, 
The people had turned away from justice and righteousness. They had made money and sex and power the most important things in their lives, the things they chased above all else. Having a just and a right society didn't matter to them anymore. Everything was about power. Now, we might think as Christians that we don't need to hear this today because we don't worship those old gods. We're in, we, don't worship, we do worship the God of Israel, the God we're supposed to worship. And actually, nobody worships the Canaanite gods anymore. But sometimes we still worship the things that those gods represented. Sometimes we put our own desires above our commitment to following God. Maybe you're really gunning for a promotion at work. So you set yourself to the grindstone. You take on extra work, extra shifts. And in the process, you neglect to spend time with your family or spend time with God. If you're a bit younger and you're unmarried like I am, maybe there's a guy or a girl that you're really interested in, but you know, they're not a Christian. And so you start to twist your personality to appeal to them. Maybe you like seeing big numbers in your bank account balance and you're really stingy with your money. Now, I'm not saying it's not important to be financially responsible. You should be financially responsible. But it becomes a problem when there's a need and you could give, but you don't. Sometimes we're so worried about our own interests and aspirations that we put them ahead of following God. And when we do that, we're worshiping idols. We're putting something that isn't God in the number one spot in our lives. And when we do that, we hurt not only ourselves, but also the people around us. Now, Amos knows that we today and the people of Israel back then sometimes forget how great God is. And so he gives us a reminder of God's power. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion, who turns the midnight into dawn and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. Now, like the choices of cities in the previous part, the description of God given here is not random. It's very particular and pointed. The statements here directly counter the Canaanite gods that the people of Israel had turned to. A big part of the Canaanite religion was looking up at the stars and the moon and the sun and tracking the ways that they moved and trying to discern the will of the gods from their movement. And so what God is saying here is actually, no, I put those things in place and I cause them to move. You can't discern the will of these other gods through them because they're mine. Similarly, with the water, the chief Canaanite god was a god of the weather and people would pray to that god for rain and good harvest. And so God says, actually, no, I caused the rains to fall. Whether or not you have a good harvest relies on me. And finally, the people believed that the Canaanite gods would bring them victory in war. And what God says is, no, actually, I am the one with the power to win wars. What God is telling the people is that they are not going to find what they're looking for by worshiping other gods. Only God with a capital G, the God of the Bible, can provide people with what they're looking for. I want to jump back to the beginning of the passage for a minute, where God said, seek me and live. Now, to the ancient Hebrews, the idea of living didn't just mean not dead. 
God isn't just saying, seek me and your existence will continue. To the ancient, to the ancient Hebrews, to truly live meant to live a fulfilled life. If your life was aimless, but didn't have any meaning in it, then you weren't really living. When God says, seek me and live, he's saying, these other gods, they can't do anything for you. In fact, they're not even real. Seek me and I will give you what you are looking for. It's the same for us today. We might chase power or sex or money, hoping that those things will bring us happiness and fulfillment, but they won't. Having lots of money or high status, those things won't satisfy you. There's a uh, classic Christian TV show called Veggie Tales. And for those of you who aren't familiar, it was a kid's TV show about talking vegetables who acted out stories that communicated biblical truths. I know this is a bit of whiplash from what I was talking about before, but don't worry, it'll make sense. There's one episode that I remember quite well about a blueberry fittingly named Madam Blueberry. And Madam Blueberry tries to find fulfillment in buying lots of stuff. If she can just have enough nice things, she'll finally be happy. And at the end of the episode, her house is so overstuffed with stuff that it literally breaks apart at the seams and it explodes. And it's kind of comical, but the moral of the story is that trying to find happiness by having lots of nice things will never work. You can't satisfy yourself with stuff or money or power. It's just an endless chase for more. You'll never be satisfied. The only thing that can really bring fulfillment to your life is God. Unfortunately, it's not just ourselves that we hurt when we put other things before God. We hurt the people around us too. And so from here, Amos launches into specific accusations against the people. Hurtful things that the people of Israel were doing as they chased money and sex and power. There are those who... There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detests the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. And then a few verses later, there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. In their pursuit of money and power, the rich were bleeding the poor dry, and then when the poor took them to court over it, they would stack the deck in their favor. They would bribe judges and intimidate witnesses in order to get the outcome that they wanted. Because they had put the pursuit of wealth above their commitment to following God, they had no problem doing whatever they needed to get more money and keep that money. The truth is that when we worship idols, we put, when we put other things ahead of God, our communities and our societies come to reflect those values. When we put money and power first, then the pursuit of money and power becomes everything, and the poor are neglected, if not outright stolen from. When justice and righteousness, the attributes of God, aren't our primary goal, then the communities we live in won't be just or right, and people will suffer for it. And God doesn't stand for it. He tells the rich and the powerful, therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. 
God tells Israel's elite, just as you have plundered from the poor, so too will these things be plundered from you. When we perpetuate injustice, there is a reckoning. God will not allow evil to stand. And in the case of the nation of Israel, their judgment came in the form of the Assyrians. Forty years-ish after Amos finished prophesying to the people, Israel was conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and the people were carried off into exile. They did not get to live in their stone mansions. They did not get to drink from their vineyards. There'll be a reckoning for us, too, if we don't follow God. It won't come as soon as 40 years, but the Bible does say when Jesus comes again, he will judge the living and the dead. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. If we claim to follow God, but we spend our lives chasing idols and hurt other people in the process, we shouldn't expect to get off scot-free. Though we may enjoy the fruits of our injustice for a time, in the end, all things will be set right. We need to live out the will of God in our lives. Justice and righteousness and mercy. Now that's really heavy. It's a lot of doom and gloom. But at the end, God does offer the people some hope. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as you say that he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. When we seek good and when we maintain justice, God will be with us. And even when the culture around us is spiraling out of control, God will have mercy on the faithful remnant. And even when we spent our lives chasing idols, God gives us the opportunity to turn back to him. It's interesting that God here says to seek good. At the beginning of the oracle, God said to seek God, to seek himself. And yet he parallels that statement here by saying to seek good. The reality is that seeking God and seeking good are one and the same. If our attempts to seek God don't lead us to do good, then we're not really seeking God. It's only when we act justly and love mercy that we are truly walking in the way of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who cares about justice and righteousness. Thank you for calling us to a higher standard. Lord, in all the ways that we contribute to injustice and unfairness, forgive us. Help us see the places in our lives where we are chasing idols and lead us back to you. Help us to seek good and maintain justice. May we seek only after you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.